The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to the Exchange Podcast. I'm Rob Cox, global editor of Reuters Breaking Views. To mark the 10-year anniversary of the collapse of Lehman Brothers and the near-death spiral it caused in the international financial system, we are presenting a series of interviews with policymakers, regulators, and bankers who are caught up in that maelstrom a decade ago. Give a listen to 10 Years After. The financial crisis of 2008 propelled many previously unknown bankers, bureaucrats, and regulators into the spotlight. Neil Kashkari is a prime example. Just a few years after interning at Goldman Sachs, he went to work for the firm's former boss, Hank Paulson, who became Secretary of the Treasury in 2006. That put Neil in a prime position when the financial crisis hit a couple years later. He was one of the architects of a contingency plan. That ultimately became the Troubled Asset Relief Program, which injected $700 billion into the U.S. banking sector in the end. Neil joined me from Minneapolis, where he's now running the Federal Reserve Bank there. He had a brief stint in the private sector working for PIMCO after the crisis. He followed that with an unsuccessful bid as the Republican candidate for the governor of California. So listen to us as we talk regulation, go back a little bit on the crisis, about what worries him most, politics, and more. Neil Kashkari, thanks for popping in from Minneapolis today. Thanks for having me. I thought it would be good to just sort of go back a bit uh, in in 10 years, if we could. When you were at the Treasury at the time as an assistant secretary, where was the moment, if you can recall, where you you realized, oh, man, this is not just like a an investment bank going bust on Wall Street. This is something with potentially global economic consequences. Well, I think the first time that I had that thought was in January of 2008. I was with Treasury Secretary Paulson, and he had on his speakerphone former Fed Chairman Alan Greenspan. And we were talking about the economic indicators and what was happening in global financial markets. And that was the first time that I heard anyone say, and Alan Greenspan said in his very quiet voice that we might be facing a one-in-a-hundred-year economic event. Hmm. And that really surprised us and set us back and made us think, oh, my gosh, we really need to prepare for the worst. But wait a minute. That's January 2008. So what happened between then and September 2008? Well, a lot happened. Obviously, uh, first you had Bear Stearns uh, failing and then being saved in March of 08. You had the Fannie Freddie rescues, et cetera. But it was back in January of 08 that we realized we needed to prepare for the worst. And that was actually what prompted Secretary Paulson to instruct me and one of my colleagues, another Assistant Secretary, Philip Swagel, to draft a contingency plan of what would we do if the worst actually came to pass. And that ultimately led later to the TARP. But wasn't, okay, so, so it, was, it was more like a, whoa, let's have something for in case, you know, really bad weather comes along. It wasn't necessarily, a, um, I mean, because we didn't actually change the system. Um, even after Bear Stearns, you know, Lehman Brothers limped along for quite some time, and people sort of said, all right, these guys are, you, know, you had David Einhorn and other folks who were, who were beating the drum on their solvency. Um, I mean, was there, was, there, was there an opportunity lost then, in a sense, to sort of do more before September 2008? I don't think so. You know, past financial crises had often been marked by one major institution running into trouble and then either failing or being saved. And then that ended up being a moment when everybody could breathe a sigh of relief that the worst is now behind us. So when we, with the Federal Reserve, ended up rescuing Bear Stearns in March 2008, 
we breathed a sigh of relief and we said, okay, maybe the worst is behind us right. and maybe people can now move on. And for about a few weeks or a month, we thought maybe that was true. And then markets started heading south again. Right. I mean, if you, if you think that contingency plan, which became the blueprint for the Troubled Asset Relief Program, which was essentially a, you know, a $700 billion equity injection into the banking system, of course, also the, the car business um, later. But I mean, at, at the start, wasn't the idea really to buy sort of buy back um, or, you know, bad loans rather than to inject equity into the banks themselves? It was. That was the original purpose of the TARP. But we intentionally designed the TARP to give us flexibility that if we needed to move more aggressively and put in equity, we could do that. The one mistake that we had made continuously throughout the crisis is we continuously underestimated how severe it was going to be. And so we recognized when we were going to Congress, we, we do want to buy up assets. But if we're misunderstanding the crisis and if it's worse than we think, we may need to move more aggressively, and that's why we built in the ability to. Right. Plan so it was sort of like a like a you know the in the plan B, there was another plan B, which is um, to inject capital at that point. That's right. And so okay, let's say let's go back uh, ten years. You've had that call with um, Secretary Greenspan um, and Hank Paulson, and you came out of that meeting and you said, you know. Knowing what you know now, which is of course magic thinking, but what would you what would you do differently, or what would you advise uh, Secretary Paulson to do differently? You know, it's hard to know because at the end of the day, the American people, through their elected representatives, had to endorse our actions. They had to authorize us to do what we did, and it was very hard to convince Congress of the magnitude of the crisis, while at the same time giving confidence to the markets. I, I like to say that we had two different audiences, two different messages, but Secretary Paulson had one microphone. Mm-hmm. And so we ended up having a muddled message in the middle that I don't think anybody was satisfied with. Given that, I'm not sure what we could have done differently. Knowing what we know now, I would have preferred that we moved more aggressively, more quickly on all fronts. But the politics, the reality of the politics are what they are. Yeah. No, I mean, I think back to you had uh, had to have two tries in the House of Representatives to get TARP done. And that was that was those were pretty harrowing days in the markets. That's exactly right. In fact, the, the, as you know, the the day the House voted it down that afternoon, the Dow dropped 777 points, which actually was really important to the House then voting in favor of it a couple of days later. Yeah, no, it, it certainly scared them straight. So, um, OK, let, let me just ask you what you've learned from the whole thing. I mean, you know, how did it change the way you you know, now think about the financial industry or taking risk in general? Well, I went into the crisis. We were part of the Bush administration. We were a free market Republican administration. I deeply believed in free markets. I still believe in free markets. But I now have learned that free markets can make mistakes and sometimes very big, very costly mistakes. And so we do need some guardrails to try to protect us against the worst excesses. We don't want government officials making minor economic decisions. The markets need to make these allocation decisions. But we need to protect against the worst excesses. And that's what we saw happen in 2008. And and how did it inform your career? I mean, you, you were, I guess you left in about 09, the Treasury. Is that right? I did. I left in May of 09. And correct. you went and you did some work in the private sector, worked for PIMCO. Um, and then you ran uh, for the governor of California. I learned in Washington just how important public policy is. And so in some sense, I got the bug and I said, I want to make a difference. And, you know, I've said to people that if you want to help a thousand people, donate to a charity. Mm -hmm. If you want to help a million people 
or 10 million people, the only way you can do that is by improving public policy. So public policy really matters. I learned that during the financial crisis, and that's what led me to want to run for governor of California. And that ultimately is what led me to want to join the Federal Reserve when I got the chance. When you were running, or after you ran for California, governor of California, what did you learn about the pol- about polit? I mean, to our politics from that experience. I'm just sort of thinking: Did you sense that the populism that you know had got us to where we are today with Donald Trump in office? Um, it, did you get a sense that there was this strain and you know out there? And also, I mean, did you sense that that it was leading? That in a sense, it was a derivative of unfinished business from the crisis. Oh, absolutely. I absolutely believe the political divisions that we experience today as a country is a result of the financial crisis. You know, the financial crisis was deeply unfair. Not just, you know, some people bought homes they couldn't afford, of course, but many people were prudent. Hmm. Many people bought homes they could afford, but then when the financial crisis turned into the Great Recession and they lost their jobs and then they lost their homes, that was deeply, deeply unfair. And then we had to go bail out the financial system to prevent a complete collapse, and that led to great anger. And you saw both Occupy Wall Street and the Tea Party emerge on the left and the right, hmm. but they're both angry really about the same thing, which is the financial crisis and the unfairness. And it's still there. I mean, you you know, you know, get a sense that you know you can see whether it's from the followers of Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren on the left, or, or even some of the, the, the legislation coming out of, the, out of the, the House on the Republican side. You know, there does seem to still be this sense that uh, of a need for some sort of Old Testament um, justice to be served to the sort of the financial establishment. I, I think that's right. I think you know, for centuries in our nation, we had this belief in freedom, free markets, and fairness. If you take a risk, you get the upside, but you also get the downside. Well, we violated that during the financial crisis because we couldn't allow the financial system to collapse and plunge us into another Great Depression. But when you violate the core beliefs of a society, it does lead to great anger. And still, many people are still trying to recover 10 years on from the financial crisis. You know, our, our labor market has not yet fully recovered to where it was back in 2006. And it's more than 10 years later. Do you, how much, so, there's, so we can look at, at um, you know, f- policy with regards to bailouts and that thing is one, sort of one bucket. What about monetary policy? I mean, one of the, the, the questions, you know, that has come up is, is you've seen, certainly you saw it in the stock market, and you've seen this giant increasing divide in, in between the haves and the have-nots, certainly when it comes to financial assets, as a result of the monetary policy and the reflation of assets. I mean, is there a danger that actually our monetary policy response, setting aside what you guys did at the Treasury with TARP and whatnot, also has gotten us to a point where, um, where that divisiveness is now more pronounced? You know, I understand those arguments. People say low interest rates and quantitative easing are pushing up asset prices and exacerbating wealth inequality. But I push back on that because the most valuable assets that the vast majority of Americans have is not their home. It's their job. Mm. And by keeping monetary policy accommodative, we are trying to strengthen the labor market and ultimately boost wages, which helps the vast majority of Americans. Now, we're frustrated that wage growth has not picked up as much as we would have expected. But I challenge anyone to say how if we had raised interest rates, that that would have led to faster wage growth. I don't understand the economics behind that. Yeah, I mean, I guess what what people do will will point out is that ultra low interest rates led to misallocation of capital, allowed for you know zombie companies to to thunder on, and and I guess you know you also had it coincide with a pretty dramatic decline in productivity, which ultimately is one of the great determinants of uh, I imagine of of job um, you know wage growth. 
It is. No, no question. Productivity growth, uh, we need faster productivity growth. But again, to argue that productivity growth is low because of monetary policy, I mean, maybe it's an interesting soundbite, but I don't know of any economic analysis that supports that view. Yeah. All right, let's talk about your new job. Well, you know, you're not that new, but uh, the job you currently occupy as uh, president of of the Minneapolis Federal Reserve. As a central banker now, looking back at the past 10 years, what makes you a bit satisfied, you know, happy, or, or so I should say, I wouldn't want to say complacent, but but less concerned about the health of the financial system and the banking system. And then, you know, on the other side, what, you know, what keeps you up at night? Well, I think there's no question that progress has been made in strengthening the financial system. The biggest banks in America today do have more capital or cushion against bad things than they had before the financial crisis. So that's progress. They also have longer-term liquidity we are subjecting them to stress testing. These are all good things. But if we analyze it objectively, and we've done it at Minneapolis, we don't think they have near enough capital to try to prevent a future financial crisis. And we think given where they're capitalized today, if they ran into trouble, the American people would have to step in again. Mm-hmm. So we've made progress, but I think we're a long way from declaring victory. And, and when, you th- when you say that they'd have to step in again, I mean, if you look at you know, I mean, let's not go let's not go down like Title II and all this kind of, you know, uh, stuff. But I mean, generally, I mean, isn't there a belief among many people that Dodd-Frank, Title II, a whole, a whole number of reforms have given us at least the tools or given you, I should say, central bankers and regulators, the tools to allow major institutions to effectively um, recapitalize themselves by wiping out shareholders, going down the, the capital structure with bondholders, and that the real issue is just nobody would have the political will to make it happen? Or do you think actually the, the tools aren't sufficient? No, I don't think the tools are sufficient. I think they work in theory, but not in practice. So this notion of converting debt to equity, while it works in an industrial company in isolation, the risk is of contagion from one big bank to another big bank. And there have been many examples, even since the crisis and during the crisis, when bondholders should have taken losses, but they were protected because of the risk of contagion. So I'll give you an example. Fannie and Freddie had issued subordinated debt back in 2001, that was supposed to take losses if Fannie and Freddie ever ran into trouble. That debt was protected because of the risk of contagion to the rest of the financial sector. Nobody's come up with a solution for that other than just making banks fund themselves with more equity. And when you say protected, it was protected by statute or is it protected by? By, by policymakers. Yeah, yeah, so, so Treasury and uh, the regulators decided we cannot haircut the Fannie and Freddie subordinated debt because it will lead to other losses in the financial sector and contagion. What, what about what about the di- difference between big and small banks? I mean, obviously, in your region, um, you've got and I actually used to be a banking reporter based in in Chicago. So I used to go around the Midwest and see these, you know, so one or two branch banks and all around uh, your territory, as it were. Um, and you also had, of course, big banks in Minneapolis, um, although I imagine they're now um, sort of national banks. But, um, you know, what do you get a sense in, uh, that the smaller banks, you know, those a billion and less in assets are are now um, at at a severe disadvantage vis-a-vis the big guys? I do. I think that the, one of the downsides of the Dodd-Frank is that it made the economies of scale issue worse in favor of the big banks and against the little banks. And so you've seen a lot more consolidation and concentration among the biggest banks because it's easier for a big bank to add five compliance officers than it is for a small bank to add five compliance officers. And so in some sense, it's made the too-big-to-fail problem worse. And if you look, the smallest banks in America today tend to be much better capitalized than the giant banks. 
Well, that doesn't make any sense. The biggest banks are where the risk lies. They should have higher capital standards, if anything, than the small banks. Yeah. I mean, one thing I saw in the, in the second quarter numbers from the FDIC, it actually, for the first time since before the crisis, the small banks are paying less to fund their earning assets than the very big banks. So the billion and less are paying whatever, you know, more or less the same amount on, on for their for deposits as the top. But then you have this group of the hundred to or whatever it is, billion to, to 250, where they're paying more than everybody else. I wonder if that's where people are looking for or feeling a little bit concerned. I think so. I mean, and you look at the regulatory relief that was passed by Congress, while it was marketed as small bank, community bank regulatory relief, most of the relief comes in the very large regionals, the $100 billion, $200 billion, as you were saying. Yeah, yeah. So that would be reflected in the fact that they pay a bit more f- to fund their businesses, I guess. I guess. Um, so uh, what, what, aside from good old-fashioned banking crisis, what out there, what out there worries you? Are you, um, do you look at, um, I don't know whether it's cyber, obviously, everybody talks about as a concern, but is, you know, or clearinghouse. I mean, is there any sort of particular part of, or, or, or part of the financial system that, that gives you pause? Well, uh, cyber gives everybody pause and everybody is doing their best, but you can never declare victory because there's no way of knowing, have we done enough? But that's that's an area of continuous ongoing concern, not just for the banks that we regulate, but also for the Federal Reserve itself. We're very focused on this. Where does where do does, does a potential trade war uh, rank on your list of concerns about uh, for economic growth? It's one of our top concerns, frankly, because we have very little ability to predict the probable outcomes. You know, this is a little bit like a game of chicken, and you hope at least one side is going to blink before they go crashing into each other. But a full-fledged trade war would be terrible for the U.S. economy and for the global economy, and we need to avoid that. At the same time, I'm very sympathetic with the need to push China aggressively to actually embrace fair trade practices. We've been in dialogue with them for 20 years. All the talk has gotten us almost nowhere we actually need to push them to have fair trade. So I'm sympathetic with what the administration is trying to do. Uh, then there's emerging market risks, you know, where you're seeing flare-ups around the world. And then I'm also very focused on monetary policy. And are we, the Federal Reserve, raising interest rates too quickly? Are we going to end the expansion by our own policy actions, even though we are trying to continue the expansion? Well, I tell you, if the recession does, if, if, if the slowdown does come, you know who's going to blame you guys, whether it's true or not. That's very true. Very well, true. speaking of which, I mean, Fed independence, you know, when you were back at the Treasury and you were working very closely with, the, you know, you, obviously the Treasury, all the agencies and the central bank were working very closely together. Um, what's the fine line between sort of that cooperation and, and sort of excessive influence to your mind? I think it's hard to know where exactly that line is drawn. The one thing we've learned over, to our great benefit over the last 30 years is when leaders of both parties have emphasized Fed independence, that has led to lower interest rates and lower inflation. And so my message to anybody who will listen is, if you want low rates, stress Fed independence. Because back when Reagan was president, and we had much less government debt than we have today as a share of the economy, we had much higher interest rates and much higher inflation. And it's Fed independence that has delivered low interest rates, low inflation, even though we've got much more government debt. And so Fed independence is the key to low interest rates. 
I don't get a sense that there's a, a bipartisan um, difference on that respect, but I do certainly. You've heard, you know, Donald Trump uh, has has made some some uh, remarks that would suggest that um, he has a view about monetary policy, and which is basically the one that we saw on the campaign trail and before, which is he likes low interest rates. Understood. And, you know, he's the president, so he gets to decide what he wants to opine on. But I've got great confidence that Chairman Powell and all of my colleagues on the FOMC are totally committed to making decisions for economic reasons, not for political consideration. So we're going to do our part to protect Fed independence. I do get a sense that under the, the, the sort of Powell Fed has done a uh, has worked pretty hard to demystify a bit the Federal Reserve. You know, there has been there has been in the past a sense that oh, you know, these guys are unelected, and you know, who, you know, who they call the shots, and who are they? I mean, you saw a little of that come out during the, the campaign and the you know the electoral campaign. Um, I get a sense, you know, speaking in plain language. Um, answering questions sometimes with with not with saying I don't know the answer to that, which is you know a, a pretty easy way to, def, to 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 give people a sense that maybe you aren't all knowing. Um, I mean, is that is is that uh, by design? It is by design, and I think that certainly Chairman Powell is working very hard to demystify the Fed. But I also think his predecessor Janet Yellen worked hard to demystify the Fed, and all of us uh, Fed leaders try our part and do our part to try to demystify the Fed. Because I think, I actually think we have a great story to tell the Amer- to the American people if we're given the chance. And so let's use the chance now to t- explain to people what we're doing and why, earn their trust, so that in the future, heaven forbid, if there's another crisis or another economic downturn, we've earned their trust and then they can have confidence in us. Yeah. Neil, let's talk a little bit about uh, income and wealth uh, inequality. What have you guys been doing in the district specifically to try to address this kind of question? Well, one of my biggest surprises coming to Minnesota was the huge disparities that we have in the state. The state's doing great on many dimensions, but we have some of the worst racial disparities in the nation, and that really surprised me. So I started asking our economists, why is that? Why do these gaps exist here in Minnesota and around the country? And I was surprised how few good answers I found. So we've launched a major long-term research initiative called the Opportunity and Inclusive Growth Institute to try to harness the Federal Reserve's research capability to try to shed a light on some of these structural challenges that are facing the U.S. economy. We probably can't solve them with monetary policy, but if we can do the analysis and arm other policymakers with the data and tools they need, then we think that's an important contribution. And what are you finding? What what are the preliminary uh, results show? I mean, so far, these are multifaceted. I mean, education, the gaps in education and the quality of the schools available to kids is a big source of it, there, but it's also related to housing. Affordable housing is a big challenge, as is health care. So what we're learning is these problems are multifaceted, but it's not without hope. There are programs around the country that are showing promise. We want to shine a light on the programs that are delivering the most progress and try to drive the resources towards them. Great. So, uh, Neil, you're you're a young guy too. You've done you had your taste of politics. You've got some more time um, at the Federal Reserve in in Minneapolis uh, to do uh, to do some things. And then then what? You going to go back to politics at all? You know, no no plans. You know, the reason I ran for office is the same reason I joined the Fed because I care deeply about public policy, and I'm in a role now where I can help influence public policy, hopefully for the better. So I have no plans for the future other than keep doing what I'm doing. I'm working with terrific people, really challenging, interesting, important issues. I'm learning a ton, and I'm very happy to be here. Great. Neil, thanks so much for coming on, and uh, hopefully we won't be speaking another 10 years about uh, the crisis that passed. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, and I'd love to chat another time. 
Thanks for listening to the latest episode of our 10 Years After Exchange podcast series. This podcast was produced by Ben Kellerman and Andrew D'Antonio. If you haven't already, please sign up on iTunes and anywhere else you satisfy your audio cravings for The Exchange, The Views Room, and other Reuters podcasts. You can also check us out at BreakingViews.com and on Twitter at BreakingViews and at Rob1Cox. 